Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 19th, we're studying Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus questions his disciples concerning his own identity, and upon their confession, he instructs them what it actually means for him to be the Christ and what it means for them to follow him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Glad to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Speckard, let's talk context. We're here at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9 in the Gospel according to St. Mark. What do we need to know about the Gospel, about the particular section we're in going into these texts? Yeah, context is definitely key here, uh, because I think if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, you know that this this uh, episode, this uh, passage that we'll be studying, really is um, a, a major pivot point uh, in the gospel of Mark. And in fact, if you look at the uh, blue CPH commentaries, you'll see that the first volume uh, goes through Mark chapter 8, verse 26, and then you begin the second volume with Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And there's uh, a really good reason for that, as uh, Jesus is still... Um, uh, undertaking his his earthly ministry there in the region of Galilee, but based on the events that we're going to consider today and um, uh, something shortly after these verses, uh, really his face very quickly becomes set towards Jerusalem, and you're going to have a um, in his teaching and his his preaching uh, certainly what he um, shares with the disciples uh, today. Uh, you're going to see a, a major shift in tone uh, within the gospel of, of Mark itself. Yeah, there's definitely a, a transition here, and leading up to that transition, we've seen the disciples pretty low in terms of what their picture looks like. They're not presented here as those who are getting it at this point. And, and we're going to start to see, I think, in this text, and I'll let you talk more about this when we get there, a bit of what we saw yesterday in the healing of the blind man is going to be played out in the lives of the disciples as they see and listen to Jesus. So we'll just go ahead and read the text and let some of those themes come out as we talk. We're in Mark 8, beginning at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That is the text for today, Mark 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Pastor Speckard, set the context for us. Jesus is in the villages of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. Where is he in, in terms of geography for Israel? Yeah, so that's kind of important that uh, Caesarea, <laughs> that is a tough one to say, Caesarea Philippi uh, is in the uh, the very northern uh, uh, portion of the region of Galilee, which within the uh, promised land Israel is is northern itself. So this, this actually is about as far north as our Lord's earthly ministry extends, um, which is important because uh, if you can just sort of picture the path that Jesus walks during uh, his, uh, his life on earth and, and particularly his earthly ministry, um, you sort of have him going all the way up here uh, to the northern part of Israel. And then this is going to um, the passage immediately following this is the, the transfiguration uh, there at Mount, uh, Mount Hermon. Um, he is going to uh, come down the Mount of Transfiguration and sort of be on this downhill trek um, speeding towards Jerusalem. And, and particularly in Mark's gospel, you see that uh, that speed picking up as he reaches Israel's holy city. So um, you you almost have this the sense in which geographically you're reaching a a pinnacle, uh, and now our Lord is going to do an about face uh, based in parts upon what what he teaches uh, in these verses, uh, and then uh, head head down south uh, to Israel's holy city to Jerusalem, um, and and begin to. Um, see his ministry culminate there. Uh, so that's that's pretty significant. Hmm. So even in the geography of the text, we're seeing how this is a, a transitional moment in Jesus' ministry. As you said, he's about to do that about face, come down from the mountain of transfiguration, as we'll see in the next text, but then go back up to Jerusalem in, in elevation as he goes toward Jerusalem, which is, is where he meets crucifixion. And that's where we will really see Mark's gospel slow down for all the action, for all the the quick pace that we've seen him take to get us just to this point. And then the next two chapters will get us to Jerusalem in the beginning of 11. That's where Palm Sunday happens. The rest is dedicated to that last week of Jesus' life, and he really slows it down. That's where he's, he's building to his climax. So he's this is a bit of a, a climax here, or a, a turning point toward the climax, uh, even in the geography. Now, the yeah, the, very much. the question that Jesus asks, too, is, is just, a, I mean, this is really, I think, the question that Jesus has been driving at all along. He's going to, he's going to, Pose it to his disciples in a a rather he's going to help it you know ease into it for his disciples I suppose so he starts by saying well who do people say that I am why why is this such an important question that Jesus is beginning to bring up with his disciples yeah in some ways I think we would say this is this is the important question uh, not just for the disciples and, and not even just for our Lord's earthly ministry or or just within the Gospel of Mark but but basically for you know for all of existence fundamentally. Uh, the question of the identity of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, uh, really is foundational uh, to whether or not you have uh, communion with the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who created all things, 
uh, or not. Um, if you are correct in your understanding of the identity, purpose, and mission, and love of Christ, uh, you are on the same page as the one through whom all things are created. Um, if you don't have this right, uh, if you somehow, and there's a million ways to get it wrong, um, if you don't understand that Jesus is the Christ, um, both in his identity and in his uh, mission, his purpose, what he actually does, uh, his activity, I guess we would say, um, if you don't get that, then you are out of sync with the uh, the creator. And and that's why this question is so, um, so just enormously important. And it is interesting the way that Jesus um, kind of eases his disciples into answering it. Um, I, you know, I'm sure books have been written about uh, our Lord's use of the Socratic method and, and whether or not this would technically qualify as the Socratic method. Uh, I do not know, but where, where he's asking questions uh, of his students, uh, helping them to sort of provide the right answer and, and giving them uh, an opportunity to, um, you know, by answering for the crowd, supply the wrong answer, uh, as we'll see. Uh, and then, you know, he kind of feeds them, okay, well, what do you say? Um, and it's all, as we'll see, it's all, it reminds me of of like a, a kindergarten teacher talking to little kids, sort of helping them get to the right answer. So they feel as though they, they got there on their own, uh, but really they were being led uh, is kind of what's happening here. Well, and I think, I mean, in asking this question, and again, in the, the dual way that he asks it, first, who do people say that I am? And then who do you, disciples, who do you say that I am? I mean, it, it's like he's asking him, asking them to reflect on everything they've seen up to this point. I think it, and didn't the disciples even ask this question rather ironically, I suppose, after Jesus calms the storm, they say, who then is this? They, right. they asked it themselves, and now Jesus is putting it on them. Think about everything you've seen. What do you say? What does it yeah. mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and you see this question asked in other ways. When um, uh, in Mark chapter six, after uh, uh, John the Baptist is, or where Mark is recounting how how Herod kills uh, John the Baptist, you sort of have um, the Herod and, and some of the other uh, people, um, you know, trying to get at the identity of this Jesus who was performing these miracles, and and at that point had sent out his. Uh, his disciples and and obviously the word is spreading um you know it, it's it's a fascinating thing to consider uh if you had been there in real time uh, when our lord was doing these things and teaching the way he was teaching um who would we have said that he is mm. uh, and he certainly uh gives the disciples an opportunity to to get this right and they kind of do uh but they they kind of don't as we'll see <laughs> that's right so they they start by answering jesus again less threatening question who do people say that I am. They start listing some answers, and you mentioned that we've actually seen these listed already back in Mark chapter 6. People were questioning who Jesus was, and that that leads Mark into telling us about the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Here you get those three answers again. So let's let's talk a little bit about why these might have been answers that would have been out there concerning Jesus, and how each one maybe has a an element of truth that people are, are getting something, but not the full thing. So the first one that they say is some people are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist. Tell us about that answer. Right. That's that's what um, uh, your listeners who are uh, tuned in for the Mark chapter 6 portion will remember. Uh, that's what Herod thought, that, you know, John the Baptist, uh, who Herod had um, uh, killed, uh, you know, he was worried almost in like a telltale heart sort of way uh, that uh, some way or another, John the Baptist was 
was back and, and presumably back for vengeance. Um, you know, John the Baptist, you know, he himself had had a pretty dynamic ministry. Uh, his his proclamation and his uh, uh, own identity uh, had been a, a question that people were asking uh, not long before this. And so, uh, you know, you can imagine how, how people may have wondered, uh, did he really die? Was he really beheaded? Um, and or, or, you know, could he have somehow overcome death? And, uh, you know, for the Jews, this this type of question uh, that that a prophet uh, might come back from the grave is not not out of line with the uh, messianic promises that they would have been familiar with. So, uh, uh, you know, jumping here from John the Baptist, then you think about uh, Elijah, uh, you know, very famously, the last Old Testament prophet Malachi uh, at the end of his. Uh, prophecy. Uh, you have, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, so they would have been looking for uh, for Elijah specifically. And, and if you're familiar with the Gospels, of course, we know that our Lord uh, addresses that uh, that idea later on uh, uh, with you know, his his own identification of John the Baptist. Uh, and then just the idea that uh, a prophet would come forward uh, and be doing the things that Jesus is doing and teaching the things that Jesus is teaching, um, you know, famously again in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, which we fairly recently had as an Old Testament text uh, in the season of Epiphany. If you're on the three-year lectionary, uh, you have the Lord will God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Uh, you know, all the way back when when Moses was preparing the people to be led into the uh, promised land by Joshua, uh, you have this. Uh, this idea of the prophets arising, and then uh, within the Gospel of Mark and, and the Synoptic Gospels generally, so much of what uh, our Lord was doing, it's hard not to see as a deliberate sort of allusion to the ministry of the prophets who came before him, whether it's uh, Isaiah or some of the other uh, some of the other Old Testament prophets. So um, you know, not hard to see why the people uh, would have been thinking along those lines, uh, and and you know. It, we read this, I think, I know when I sat down to study this text, uh, every time I read it anew, I think, like, these people have no idea what's going on. But if you think about it, they're not that far off the right track. They just they just need to understand a little bit more clearly uh, the identity of Jesus. And that's uh, uh, that's something the disciples are happy to provide here, at least at least initially. Right. I mean, these these answers, as you said, they're not that far off, and and they're they're actually pretty close. Even with you know John the Baptist, think about the questions that he faced when he was preaching. He got asked, "Are you the Christ?" They were thinking about these things. John needed to clarify for them, "No, I'm not. Someone else is coming." Here, Jesus is is getting to that heart of this question again: is who is he? What are people saying about me? Here are the answers that are barking up the right tree. They're looking in the right direction. They're seeing some things about Jesus that they should be seeing, but they haven't gone the full way. And so the disciples have laid that out for Jesus. You know, he's asking, okay, what do, what do people say? Oh, we're having a nice conversation. And then Jesus really turns the tables on him. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives his answer. So take us into the way that Jesus moves the disciples now to answer the question for themselves and how Peter gives the answer. Yeah, that's really, he does put the pressure on here that uh, it, it's one thing to uh, analyze and critique the answers given by others. It's quite another to have to give an answer yourself. And 
uh, boy, is that a lesson for yeah. uh, really for for all people of every place and time? Um, and, and you know, Jesus isn't isn't giving the disciples a pa- a pass here. Um, you know, and if we think of it in a little bit more of a zoomed out theological sense, again, being able to confess Jesus is the Christ is fundamental to uh, to salvation and and having communion with your Creator. So, um, a good thing that our Lord uh, gives the disciples a chance to to provide an answer and uh, as is typical uh, especially in mark's gospel you have peter speaking up for the 12 um uh, which uh you know matthew makes a bigger deal of that uh with when, when matthew tells of this account you have a little bit more extended dialogue between uh jesus and Ma- matthew on this point uh or i should say jesus and peter on this point uh but nevertheless you have peter speaking up for the 12 and saying you are the christ uh, and of course, Christ being sort of the uh, the Greek term for the Hebrew Messiah, you know, the uh, the appointed uh, uh, fulfillment of the promises, going all the way back uh, to Genesis chapter three, and then uh, you know the the Abrahamic covenant uh, in Genesis chapter twelve and beyond, where you have God promising uh, to send a um, the seed of woman uh, who's going to defeat sin, death, and the devil for all mankind. Um, that's who Peter says that Jesus is is here. That's what Christ means. Um, so that's a very good answer. Uh, but as we'll see, he didn't, uh, he, he gave the right answer, but when he's asked to show his work, uh, it gets a little, a little sloppy, um, as, as we'll see. Yeah. What about, I mean, you, you mentioned how Matthew, when he records this, you get a, a fuller conversation. Mark, which is, we're not, I suppose, terribly surprised by this. His account is briefer uh, when he gives it. Peter's answer is briefer. You are the Christ. What's what's the point as Mark records it in this way? Uh, why might he have given a, a shorter answer here in, in in the way that he records it? Yeah, really important question because I think when we think of this account, um, you know, we hear Peter saying, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God," which is how Matthew uh, records it in chapter sixteen of his gospel. Uh, Mark doesn't include that here, and you know, as you noted, that sort of Typical of Mark, who, who just in general uh, tends to be more um, uh, more brief in the way that he uh, uh, recounts these these um, events, but also you know the, the the inclusion of the Son of the Living God, that's an aspect of Mark's entire gospel. Uh, that if you think back to Mark chapter one verse one, I mean he begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And not wanting to give the, the whole thing away, uh, but you don't have within the Gospel of Mark that um, uh, title applied to Jesus um, until the very end in Mark chapter 15. Well, not the very end, but uh, the penultimate uh, chapter, uh, when it's the centurion, upon seeing Jesus's death, says, truly this man was the Son of God. Uh, and I don't think it's... it's um, uh, inappropriate to think that the Holy Spirit would have, uh, in the Gospel of Mark here, um, allowed some, uh, you might call it thematic suspense to build. Um, you know, Mark doesn't include Peter's full statement because we're going to have that uh, statement sort of underscored uh, and, and all uppercase letters after our Lord's death. Um, which, if you consider what Jesus is talking about, I mean, that's sort of the whole thing to be the Christ is to be the one who suffers and dies. Um, that's what the disciples need to understand. That's what the uh, the people to whom Mark was writing and all Christians uh, who read Mark's gospel need mm-hmm. to understand, uh, as we'll see. 
Well, one thing that's a little interesting, maybe ironic to a degree, and I think you and I talked about this the last time we talked about Mark, is that according to, to church history, Mark received his material primarily, I mean, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but in talking to St. Peter. And and here's one of those places where, at least as Matthew records it, St. Peter is, is very much highlighted in the text and the answer that he gives, and again, in that following conversation, as as Mark records it, Peter's role in at least in this part is diminished. He's put a little more into the background. He still is the one who speaks up for the the twelve, but you don't get that full confession. And again, and this is a bit of speculation on my part, but you kind of wonder if if some of what we see here in Mark is is Peter's own touch there that you know, he recognized that he didn't get it. And and as he's recounting this to Mark, you know, he he says, you know. To Mark, I, I didn't understand it at the time. I, I said, you are the Son of the living God, but I, I didn't know what that meant, and nobody really did until Jesus was crucified in the centurion said it. I mean, I think it, on the one hand, it's like, well, why wouldn't have Peter included that detail where he's very prominent? But I think it, you look the way that Mark lays it all out, it, it makes sense. Again, that's a bit of speculation, but it, it fits in my mind. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I think that um, it's helpful for us today also as, as we, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, you have our Lord's um, uh, dialogue with Peter where he refers to this, um, you know, on this rock, I will build my church. And, and you have um, all this confusion down the line about was he referring to Peter the man or the confession itself? Um, you know, here in Mark, we don't have any of that. The, the focus remains uh, solely upon um, uh, the identity of Jesus as Christ. And then we kind of move very quickly into the activity of Jesus as Christ. Um, and Peter is is um, not nearly so central, as you noted. Um, and kind of funny to think how Peter would have, uh, uh, you know, recounted these things to Mark. Uh, he would have known his own ignorance uh, at the time, and he would have known what was revealed to him uh, when our Lord died and rose. So, um, yeah, I think very appropriate to think along those lines. So b- before we leave this particular part of the, the text, just a, a on the context, again, to come back to that, here we we see, even though, as, as we're going to see, like Peter and the others don't fully get it, they do make a correct confession that Jesus is the Christ is quite correct, and it's more correct than the answers that are sort of floating out there. How does the immediate context, particularly the preceding text about the healing of the blind man, uh, provide some commentary on what's going on here? Yeah, I think it's just so um, uh, wonderful, a, um, uh, call it a move by the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 8, where you have this recounting of the blind man at Bethsaida who who sees gradually. Uh, and, and I think uh, the, the textual note says this is the only time in the Gospels where you have a miracle of Jesus take place um, uh, sort of in stages. Um, if you read it, you know, too quickly, you might think, well, our our Lord just didn't do his best work the first time around, but obviously, obviously that's not the case. But the man who who sees, or he's he sees, um, as our Lord's hands laid upon him, and and he sees a little bit. He says, "I see men; they look like trees walking." Um, and then Jesus um, lays his hands on his eyes again, and he can full, you know, he has his sight fully restored. You have this really beautiful picture of uh, the the sight of faith, uh, where you know the disciples are beginning to see. Um, but boy, as, as becomes clear in just a moment, they don't see perfectly clearly yet. And our Lord is going to, uh, continue to lay his hands upon them and continue to teach and preach, uh, and, and ultimately show them 
so that by the end, uh, they they finally do see what it means that he is the Christ, um, not only for uh, for his identity, but but more importantly, even for the uh, for the salvation of the world. Um, so yeah, really, uh, really wonderful to have that miracle account right before these verses, because uh, it does kind of give us an image of uh, gradual understanding. I think that image also helps to explain, particularly in this context, and probably in others as well, one of the things that we've seen throughout Mark, where Jesus strictly charges people not to say anything, he does that here after this confession that he is the Christ. You know, in a moment when, oh, they get it, it's like, well, why wouldn't you want people to say that? Well, probably because they don't quite get it fully, which is made plain as the text continues. So, and, and as we continue then, take us into how Jesus takes this confession from Peter and begins now really for the first time to be very explicit as to what he's here to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, this really, there, there's lots of ways you could divide up this text uh, and, 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 you know, where exactly is the pivot point within this uh, this transitional uh, section of Mark's gospel. But um, I mean, this, this in some ways is it. Uh, they confess him as the Christ. Okay. Everything Jesus has done, all of his teaching, all of his miracles, all of his sort of gradually leading them to this realization has gotten to the point of Peter saying, you are the Christ. Uh, and then, you know, Jesus says, okay. And he began to teach them that the son of man, which is a, a, a uh, Christological um, uh, uh title, uh, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, which for us as New Testament Christians, I mean, this, that's what we think of when we think of Christ, uh, or at least that's what we should think of. Uh, for those of us who know the full story, um, you know, the, the reality of Christ crucified and risen is, is sort of part and parcel with understanding the identity of Jesus. Uh, but for the uh, disciples, um, they hadn't heard that before. And if they were, um, as our Lord would demonstrate, you know, if they um, go back and study uh, the Old Testament, they will see the necessity of this. But knowing Jesus as they do and having their own ideas and their own aspirations and hopes and dreams for uh, for the one that they call rabbi and the one that they follow, um, this this catches them a little bit off guard quite clearly, um, as we see from C uh, Peter's rebuke. We'll pick up Peter's rebuke on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO, looking at Mark chapter 8 and beginning of 9 with Pastor Dan Speckard. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 19th. We're looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. We have Pastor Dan Speckard with us. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. 
Pastor Speckard, on the first side of the break, we looked at the confession that the disciples give, which is true. Jesus is the Christ. Peter has spoken up on behalf of them all. He has given the true confession, even in the midst of all the confessions that are out there that don't quite get Jesus. Here is one that is true. He is the Christ. Jesus uses that as a springboard to begin to teach very plainly, as the text says, to teach this plainly, that he is the one who has to suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and then three days later to rise. Jesus has laid it out in clearest terms. And then Peter, the one who had spoken truly earlier, you are the Christ, he says, he rebukes Jesus, which this always astounds me. He actually rebukes the Lord. Take us into St. Peter here. Yeah, we were we were laughing during the break at the uh, the audacity of Peter to uh, to rebuke the Christ, even even failing to understand what it means uh, that he is the uh, uh, the Son of God, and and obviously Jesus is going to uh, explain that here. Uh, Peter, it's it's a gutsy call to rebuke Jesus, but that's what he does. Um, you know, he, he hears uh, from Jesus that the Son of Man must suffer and and be rejected and die, uh, and clearly that's not what Peter meant. Uh, when he identified Jesus as the Christ a moment earlier, uh, that is is not what he had been thinking. Uh, and so he, um, uh, you know, to be fair, they had been having a dialogue about the identity of uh, of the Lord, of, of Jesus. And, and Peter argues back, and we don't know exactly uh, what he would have said, uh, but uh, we do know that Jesus was not impressed with, uh, with Peter's arguments against his going to die. Uh, so... Um, it's good for us, you know. It's good for us that Peter said what he said because uh, we get uh, this stern reminder uh, from Jesus that his his identity as the Christ uh, cannot be separated from his activity in the cross, on the cross, uh, and out of the empty tomb. Uh, that to uh, to know him is to know him crucified and risen. And um, uh, you know, jumping ahead, I'm not wanting to get too far ahead here, but in the next verse, when uh, I think Mark describes things so beautifully, when uh, all we hear is that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And then turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And, you know, I, maybe Mark just does that to let us know that that Jesus knows that Peter is not alone in his misunderstanding. And Jesus is going to teach, you know, all of the disciples, you know, right here, right now, let's clear this up. Um but, but every time I read it, I'm struck by the idea that, that perhaps our Lord, um, uh, you know, there's a sense in which seeing the disciples is um, uh, sort of, you know, to what extent can Jesus be inspired, but inspired to um, speak strongly out of love for them, that, that seeing them, uh, he will not give in to this opportunity to even consider his identity and his ministry apart from the cross. Um, and, and, you know, when we, the, the um, uh, almost like wrath with which Jesus responds to Peter, as we'll see, um, I think we need to see that as very much the inverse of his love um, for all people. And that includes Peter, uh, that it's because Jesus loves his disciples, sees them, loves them, desires them. Uh, he's not, uh, not going to put up with any, any version of his own ministry that doesn't culminate uh, on the cross. So 
Uh, kind of a powerful scene here. Oh, he really is. And I, I never really thought too much about the the fact that Jesus sees him there. But I think that 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 you're right in the way you're taking that. It it reminds me of in Mark chapter six when we were talking about uh, Jesus walking on the water. Before he goes out into the water, the text says that that Jesus was he saw his disciples as they were out on the lake. And again, we we talked about it. You know, his his seeing of his disciples at that moment moves him to go and and walk to them on the water to show them who he is there. Here it is the seeing of his disciples that that moves him again to to give them the truth to show them why what he just taught them about what it means for him to be the Christ is so important how serious of a matter we're really talking about for Peter to actually rebuke Jesus for that. I think there's something also in the word turning as well. In trying to picture this in your mind, Peter has taken Jesus aside to rebuke him. And I would imagine they're talking face to face. And before Jesus says anything, he actually turns around so that he's he's not looking at Peter anymore. He's looking at his, his other disciples such that suddenly Jesus is in front again and Peter is behind Jesus, which I think provides a, a good picture for Peter in that case of what Jesus is going to say later about following Jesus. I think I think there's something in both of those verbs there that that really you know add that it makes the scene pop if I can say it that way. Yeah. No, I think that's a really great catch. Uh, the the turning which I uh, I had never um, uh, maybe given so much thought to, but but absolutely. And and it, I think there's also a sense in which if you picture the scene, um, you know Jesus is is fully aware that, uh, you know, he's responding to Peter. Peter said this, uh, but his rebuke is not just for Peter. I mean, his rebuke is is ultimately of uh, of Satan, who's um, uh, time and time again sought to um, mislead and deceive the people of God. And already in our Lord's earthly ministry, back after his baptism, uh, sought to tempt uh, Jesus. And uh, here again, you just, um, yeah, you, it's a wonderful picture. It's as though Jesus is telling Everybody aligned with Satan, um, get behind me. And in telling, you know, that that includes us, born into sin, sinfully desiring things other than uh, the gospel of Christ, not understanding, being lost and confused. Um, uh, Jesus is going to lead the way, um, and and it's just a um, uh, a really really powerful picture. That's a great catch uh, on your part. So then, with with the words of Jesus, get behind me, Satan, among the words of Jesus in the Gospels, these are some of the most memorable, I think, simply because it is so harsh. Get behind me, Satan, to to the one who just said, hey, you're the Christ. Why, why this strong rebuke for Peter? And then take us into that explanation that Jesus gives, too, because it's not just shut up, but he actually takes the moment to teach as well. Yeah, and that's so so helpful that he does, and really that kind of is the the segue into the rest of the the passage we're considering. So so the the disciples have properly identified Jesus as the Christ, but quite clearly don't understand yet uh, what he has to do, what he's come to do uh, as the Christ, what it means that he's the Christ, and their lack of understanding on this point is not because they're they're poor students of Scripture. Uh, it's not. Uh, um, it's not because they weren't paying attention necessarily. It's it's because their mind uh, is is focused in the wrong place, um, and and that's always how it goes. I mean, we our souls desire God, um, and when we are at our absolute worst, is when we find ourselves um, desiring other things, uh, and that's that's precisely um, we can just infer from the way Jesus responds. Uh, that's what 
has led Peter and, and the other disciples uh, to um, be on the wrong side of the divide, uh, to uh, get sort of get in the way of his path to the cross, uh, to uh, deny that he must die. Uh, they're, they're focused in the wrong place on the things of man rather than, rather than th- the things of God. Um, and then in the, the uh, verses that follow, uh, Jesus sort of slows things down and explains why that's that's just such a foolish way to be thinking uh, and sort of um, more gently gets them back onto the right uh, the right path. So he actually calls the crowd to him now as well. So it's, it's not just the 12 who are going to hear these words that follow this larger teaching concerning now what does it mean to have your mind on the things of God instead of the things of man? And what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? So he, he starts, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These are words, almost like what you were saying in verse 31, that I think we were very accustomed to as Christians that sometimes we don't appreciate just how radical this is, how this would have really struck the disciples. What is Jesus calling his disciples to? Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is language of, of sacrifice. I mean, this is language of sacrifice. Um, uh, it is just so unnatural uh, to the the sinful people we uh, we are born as. You know, naturally we are we are self um, perpetuating, self survival uh, minded people. We uh, I don't think we all necessarily fully realize how hardwired we are uh, to to constantly be looking out for number one. And here Jesus, you know, is very plain. You know, that's uh, if you would follow me, um, it's going to begin by with self-denial, um, which is a really transformative um, uh, for an individual, almost revolutionary concept that I'm not going to look out for number one. Uh, and then Jesus uh, gives us a little bit of a, a foreshadowing, obviously, as to uh, what this type of self-denial is going to look like. Our Lord uh, uh, talks the talk and walks the walk, as we know. Um, he's going to be the um, the ultimate self-sacrifice. Uh, he himself uh, will will uh, show us what this looks like. And of course, we know, thank God, it's not just an example he sets for us, uh, but in, indeed we receive that sacrifice uh, in a much more substantial way because we're not, we're not good at self-denial. Uh, we don't like to take up our cross, um, and that's why we struggle to follow our Lord. Um, but uh, as, he, as he teaches here in the, in the uh, verses that, uh, that are coming up, um, if you are thinking clearly uh, and seeing things uh, fully, uh, you'll see that this is the way to go. That's such an important point that it, as Jesus talks here, he he is the one that does this first. He is the one who denies himself. He is the one who takes up his cross. He is the one who, who goes the way of sacrifice for the sake of others so that it it is more than just Jesus as example, but it is Jesus as Savior. He does this for you. All those things that he laid out in verse 31, that is all for you. And and these things as well, lest these verses just leave us in utter despair, because as you said, I'm not very good at this. I, you know, I, we don't yeah, realize yeah. this. I think you're exactly right. We don't realize how much we do think of ourselves first. And it when you start to see it like, oh, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I did something for the kids, but well, I really did it because I just wanted to to watch TV later and not have to do it later. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, we sure, yeah. we do these things all the time, and I mean, and not that 
not to completely throw throw us entirely under the bus, because as Christians, our motives, you know, the Spirit does begin to work in us, and fruit is produced. But it always in this life, it begins, and it's in weakness. And and I see it in myself all the time. I'm I I want to love myself. I want to take care of myself first, and yep. and to know that Jesus, when He goes to His cross and sacrifices Himself, it's not simply to set me an example, but it's actually to save me from myself. That's that makes this good news for me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is that is so so vital to understand. If if you read the gospel and and walk away with nothing other than uh, Jesus the example. Um, yeah, as you said, you're, you're headed for despair. Um, the, the whole thing is that we, we can't follow except that he attaches himself to us, uh, and drags us, you know, even, uh, even through death and out the other side. So, um, uh, nevertheless, you're teaching, you teaching his disciples about his own ministry and about, uh, about what it's going to mean, uh, to, to be a Christian and always, always have to remember our Lord knows what's coming. Um, he's, he's looking past even the uh, the time that the disciples have him uh, sort of bodily with them uh, in terms of his earthly ministry, he knows that these men are are the men who uh, are going to be responsible for proclaiming this good news uh, after he ascends into heaven, and he's very much preparing them. Um, and it's no no small thing that uh, uh, that Peter eventually would uh, would die in much the same way, not exactly the same way, but much the same way as our Lord taking up a cross. And being crucified. Jesus, Jesus continues to expound upon this. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, which sounds backwards, but it's the way that it actually works. Yeah, it's it's absolutely uh paradox. And uh, and as Christians, we you know, we do well to uh make sure we're we're you know not just seeing this in terms um, solely in terms of, of um, self-sacrifice and, and maybe thinking in terms of like martyrdom and, uh, and, and those types of things, but, uh, but just as sort of the, the fundamental way in which God brings us back into his family um, is through new life. Um, that, that this language is very much language of, of repentance and, and baptism uh, where we um, let go of the, uh, the life we have under the old Adam uh, and receive this new life in Christ, um, you you have to lose uh, the life you're born into in order to receive uh, the life uh, that Christ uh, gives, and that's um, you know that's that's precisely uh, what our Lord is talking about here. But it sounds so it sounds so backwards. It's it's as paradoxes tend to. Uh, it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit hard to wrap our minds around. What does it mean uh, that we must lose our life in order to be saved? Um, you know the applications for that uh, are are you know many uh, within the life of a Christian, and and again it begins it begins in the font. Yeah, that that that's a that's an excellent point. I'm, I'm reminded of the way that you know Luther talks, particularly in the fourth part of Holy Baptism and the Catechism, and he brings out the passage from Romans six where where Paul talks about that being buried with Christ and then raised with him in this new life. My old Adam has to actually die every day. And and I think I think the next two verses help to shed some light on that. While 35, it seems backwards in our minds, 36 and 37 help us to, to unpack that. Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? If I hold on to this old sinful life... It'll give me something right now, 
but yeah. in the end, I will actually die. And I think I think those verses help to unpack that a little. Very much, and and you know when when Jesus begins to unpack it, as as is often the case, it, it suddenly becomes clear. Um, you know, these are questions of of um, you know what what theologians and philosophers call ontology. You know, what what are we fundamentally? What what at the end of the day uh, am I? Uh, and and that's sort of what that soul language um, uh, produces in, in us is the the reminder that that uh, we are more than just this earthly existence. Um, a nature, uh, an aspect of being made in the image of God is that we, um, uh, even in our, our fallen state, have a sense of eternity uh, about ourselves. And um, knowing that, knowing that as we do, um, there's really only a couple of responses. You can, you can run from it. Uh, and, and, you know, Lord knows that is not an uncommon response. The the number of people, particularly in this day and age, who uh, are just constantly trying to convince themselves that uh, when they live, they live, and when they die, they die, and that's the end of it, uh, even though they know that's not true. Um, or you can begin thinking about, well, what do I have to do to make sure that my eternal existence uh, is is a uh, is a good one? Um, you know, we we feel what's missing. Um, we don't want eternal. Uh, eternal damnation for obvious reasons. We want the problem to be solved, uh, and and with that in mind, yeah. What what on earth would we? Uh, and, and that phrase was deliberate. Uh, what on earth would we possibly hold on to? Uh, you know, for a day or for a year or for a lifetime, if it means letting go of an eternity with uh, with our Creator. Um, when you lay it all out on paper, it makes perfect sense. But again, we're, we're battling that old Adam, that instinctive uh, uh, sort of self, uh, self-preservation preservation of this life. Uh, so there's an internal conflict there that our Lord uh, and the work of the Spirit obviously is, is helping us to overcome. I think one thing that's important, at least for me in these verses, is to recognize the importance of the resurrection in this. And the reason I say this is because I think there's a, a tendency to to spiritualize this such that the physical things of this life may not matter as long as I have my my soul. And I, I, I just, I think we need to make sure we read this in light of the resurrection. The reason that I don't need to hold on to the things of this life, or maybe the, the things of man, is because I know I have the things of God. And ultimately, the thing of God that I need the most is that resurrection from the dead. I can... I can let this body die because I know that God is going to raise it from the dead on the last day. So that even if the devil and the world try to, to take this life, I know that God's going to raise me on the dead. And I, I, that, I think, helps to, to shed some light and to keep us from over-spiritualizing these verses into some sort of abstract thing. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. And, and the, um, uh, you know, the language of soul here in Mark's gospel would, would, would very much encapsulate. It's not, uh, as you noted, it's not soul sort of over against body it's soul as in um you know the, the the sort of the essence of of humanity um which is soul and body and and yeah the um the victory our lord wins uh comes through a corporeal death uh i mean he he it's not it's not some spiritual death he dies he his body dies and his body is raised uh you know obviously this this feeds directly into the sacramental uh life of the church that um, you know, God, I always tell, I always tell people, God is not, God is not interested in the idea of us. He's not interested in an abstraction of us. 
Uh, God is interested in the flesh and blood you who he made, uh, who he redeemed, uh, and who he, he calls uh, He calls through his word and gifts. So, um, yeah, in no way should we read this to be kind of a Gnostic, um, uh, you know, intangible uh, proclamation. This is, this is uh, very much having to do with uh, the victory over death that our bodies are given uh, in the resurrection of flesh. Verse 38, the last, chap- the last verse of chapter 8, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. How, how does that help to wrap up everything Jesus has been saying so far? Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, what he's discussing is the, the what we might call the wrapping up uh, of the, uh, you know, this earth and these heavens that, um, you know, the, the day is going to come uh, when our Lord comes to, to judge the living and the dead. Uh, and uh, in that moment, uh, the uh, metric of separation, the, you know, the way that the, uh, the sheep and the goats are divided, the right hand and the left, uh, will be faith in Christ. Uh, you know, do we confess him as Lord uh, or are we ashamed? Uh, do we, for one reason or another, turn our back on the identity and activity uh, of Jesus as Christ? Uh, this is why our Lord is so, so earnest in his rebuke of Peter. Um, it's it's uh, you, you don't want to get this wrong. Um, you know, you, you don't want to uh, go down a road uh, where you're thinking it's not good that the son of God is dying for me. Uh, because that when the uh, son of man comes in glory, uh, when the, uh, uh, you know, the, the people that God has made are finally judged, um, that is going to be the, uh, the crux of it, the crux of the matter. How do you confess Christ? Um, and, and you know what Mark's doing here. And then you see in, in chapter nine, verse one, as well, you see this connection, uh, between the, uh, crucifixion, uh, you know, Good Friday and the last day. Um, and we don't have nearly enough time uh, this morning to get into that. But but you do, you know, well, we can't we can't be thinking of the cross of Christ as a, an entirely different concept than the uh, the eschaton, the last day. Um, obviously, there's chronological separation, but those events go hand in hand. And that's why Peter's attempt to waylay the crucifixion um, is is just a total non-starter, uh, as our Lord makes clear. Yeah, if he if he waylays the crucifixion, then that actually has eternal consequences. It's it's not yeah. just a an event one time that oh, it matters, you know, a year or so from now. But this has eternal consequences if he if he doesn't go to the cross. Now, and and bringing that connection in, then I think helps with nine verse one where Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I think we, when we hear that, our minds start to go to the last day first, but perhaps there's more that Jesus is referring to. What, what, what is he talking about in verse 9, verse 1? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly the thing. And, you know, if you think back to, to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, which is, uh, as I know you, you highlighted at the beginning of this study, is, is sort of the uh, in some ways, a foundational text for the entire gospel, uh, where Jesus comes after the uh, uh, arrest of John the Baptist and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, right? The coming of the kingdom of God is the coming of Christ. Um, and and 
specifically, uh, just to reiterate everything we've talked about, uh, Christ crucified and risen. Uh, so when we think about uh, the kingdom of God coming with its power, um, yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which that, that applies to the last day. Uh, but particularly for people who need Jesus to die for their sins, uh, all the more does it apply uh, to that Friday we call good, to the, uh, you know, the, the events of, uh, of Golgotha as, as Jesus is, is beginning to um, uh, transition his earthly ministry uh, in that direction. Um, and, and, you know, we can sort of extrapolate that out to the meaning of the rest of the, uh, the saying, you know, there are some standing here who will not taste death. Um, you know, the disciples were going to witness these things, right? They were going to see the glory of God made manifest for humanity uh, in Jesus on the cross. Um, uh, and in the same way, uh, we who are, are uh, born afterward, we who uh, receive that good news uh, through the, the apostolic ministry uh, of God's church, um, you know, we, uh, we see it. Um, even in this life, uh, we see it through the work of the Spirit uh, in God's Word, in God's sacraments. We receive it, um, and indeed, uh, we go to our own deathbeds knowing that Jesus died for me, Jesus rose for me, uh, death did not hold him down, neither will it hold me down. Um, so what a, what a wonderful note of comfort, uh, which is important because as, as the Gospel of Mark turns here and and uh you know, things, things get very, very serious, as you noted. You know, you, things very rapidly, suddenly we're in Jerusalem, and then, you know, a whole third of the gospel is devoted to, uh, to that week, more or less. Um, it's, it's a comforting thing uh, that Jesus is doing this for you. You're going to die, but I'm going to die too. Uh, I'm going to live, so you're going to live too, uh, is, is some of what our Lord is, is proclaiming here. Pastor Dan Speckert is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana, helping us this morning with Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1. Pastor Speckert, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Pastor. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have questions about Mark 8 or 9 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.